This is the very first full-length episode of Lens, the new podcast from British Screen Forum. We bring together industry leaders, policymakers and politicians to discuss the future of film, TV, games and digital content in the UK. There's lots more information at britishscreenforum.co.uk, where you can find information about our upcoming public events and apply for membership. Podcasting is a new initiative for us and we're learning as we go, so please do get in touch with any feedback on what we could do better and any ideas you have for future guests by sending an email to lens at britishscreenforum.co.uk. In this first series, we're focused on the past, present and future of public service broadcasting, a topic which we regularly discuss at our meetings, given the role it plays in the UK's creative economy, as well as our culture and politics. Over the next five to ten years, the PSB system is likely to face increasing pressure, driven by viewer behaviour and technology, and by ongoing political debates about its appropriate size and scope. There are some major milestones coming up. The BBC will need a new charter in 2028, and the Secretary of State made a seismic announcement that the recent licence fee agreement will be the last. Channel 4 faces the prospect of privatisation. ITV and Channel 5 will need to agree new remits if they are to renew their broadcasting licences, and important new entrants such as the streamers and social video platforms are having a profound impact on the market. But, at the very time that there's some hard thinking to do, we've had 10 Secretaries of State in less than 10 years, and significant changes at Ofcom and DCMS. So we want to play our part in ensuring the upcoming debate about PSB is as well as well informed as possible by talking to prominent advocates and critics from the recent past. We want to get their perspectives on what happened on their watch, what's been built, what it's delivered, and what should be preserved or changed going forward. We start with a conversation that was recorded a little earlier this year in John Whittingdale's office in Westminster. And I hope that it's both enjoyable and informative. So we are delighted today to be joined by the Right Honourable John Whittingdale MP. Um, thank you for your time. Uh, we are here in Portcullis House. I know it's a particularly particularly busy period at the moment, uh, so very grateful for your time. Um, John's role uh, over the course of the period that we're really talking about um, has, gives him a, a unique but frankly a pretty unparalleled set of uh, experience and perspectives through a political and parliamentary, parliamentary and ministerial career that includes uh, Shadow Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, um, a good decade uh, as either member or chair of the Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee, uh, most recently as Minister of State for Media and Data and prior to that as Secretary of State. Very well known throughout the sector uh, as both a champion and advocate uh, but also somebody who thinks very deeply about long-term direction of policy um, and fair to say I suspect at times a, a provocative and critical friend, um, certainly outspoken when need to be, uh, and, but, but a catalyst for change as well in terms of what needs to happen next. Um, so really the flavour of this is to, is to review going backwards as a way to help us build going forwards. Um, so starting, starting in the uh, obvious but probably slightly trickier than, than it looks question, what is public service broadcasting and why does it matter? It is a complicated question, um, and it may be that the answer today is not the same as it would have been had you asked that question 20 years ago. And when I was uh, most recently in government as minister, we actually set up a panel uh, of people like uh, Michael Grade, um, 
people from BT, um, Andrew Griffith from Sky, now one of my colleagues here, and, and several others to, to debate that question. And the first question is, do we still need public service broadcasting? Or at least, does the government need to intervene to require the provision of content when so much content is now being supplied through the streaming services, new entrance to the market, which was not available before. So, I mean, I think there is a legitimate question about whether or not PSB is even necessary today. And actually, the conclusion of the panel, and indeed my own view, is that yes, it is. Um, There are certain things which represent the core of public service broadcasting, which may or may not to some extent be provided by the market but nevertheless um, are still of huge public value to have provided by the public service broadcasters. The most basic is news and current affairs. Um, You have a channel like Sky News which does a great job Um, but in terms of reliable trusted source of objective and impartial news Um, the public service broadcasters still are at the heart of that system. The BBC predominantly, but not just the BBC, and I was always uh, convinced that you need plurality, so it isn't enough to have one. Um, And so that is the first requirement on the public service broadcasters. There are then areas like education, arts, um, children's programming, some of which are probably not provided for by the market to the extent which is useful. Um, But then we got into a more interesting and perhaps uh, more controversial debate about what else the public service broadcasters provide, which the government should still require of them, which is not being provided already by the marketplace. Um, And that was when one of the um, views which which was then set out by the Secretary of State, although it turned out I delivered it because of the changes that took place in government, uh, which was around Britishness, which people misinterpreted that somehow they thought Ofcom was going to be required to sort of you know, tick off which programmes were British and which wasn't. It wasn't that at all. Um, But there was a view that the quality of drama particularly provided by the streaming services was huge and actually often uh, as a result of expenditure which public service broadcasters couldn't even begin to compete with. But it lacked a identity. It It was designed to appeal across the globe. If Netflix makes a series, they want to sell it in as many territories as possible, which is perfectly legitimate and doesn't in any way suggest it it isn't of high quality. But the sort of quirky British content, which probably has less appeal or is less obviously of appeal outside this country, um, to some extent... uh, is not provided or much less provided by the streamers and that is something which the PSBs are very good at. So we were evolving, I suppose, the view of what public service broadcasting should provide to take account of the 
absolutely sort of dramatic change in the landscape in the UK in terms of the choice available to viewers. Both either as an MP or and or as a minister, what are the policy objectives that it that it delivers against? Um, I think there are a number. Um, there are there is certain broadcasting content which you know the government is quite plain is is desirable um, and and should be achieved if necessary by intervention in the market and and you know the way in which you do that is through the licensing requirements imposed by Ofcom. So things like children's television, educational content, and and again, you know, there is plenty of children's content there, but a lot of it is going, the international stuff is going to be sort of cartoons, it's it's less educationally focused, and that is something that the BBC particularly is very good at, Uh, you know, CBBC, CCTV, it is... um, it is something which I think most parents would regard as, as an invaluable resource which they would be hard put to um, survive without. I mean, I would prefer it, but it wasn't just the BBC, which is why one of the interventions which uh, I made was to establish the Young Audiences Content Fund, which sadly looks as if it may not continue. Um, but that was to plug the gap. Um so a news is the absolute core, and there is no question that both for the public interest in the UK, but actually globally as well, to have a extremely uh, trusted source of news content uh, with an international reputation is of great value to this country. Uh, and when you have been through something like the recent pandemic, you know people turned to trusted news providers to get information. So I mean, COVID undoubtedly, I think, demonstrated why it is still important to achieve that. There are then secondary um, benefits from the public service broadcasters. Uh, one is the um, the benefit they give in terms of um, pr- promoting the growth of inter- independent producers in this country. You know, we have created a hugely, hugely successful uh, TV production industry, which actually was initially um, sparked by the remit placed on Channel 4. Uh, but then one of the things which I did was to require the BBC to open up its schedules to competition from the independent production sector. I mean, as you'll recall, it used to be that a limited proportion were open, and then there was this thing they called the WOC, I think, the window of creative content or something. Um, and actually, one of the things we did in the charter was say, no, I'm the, whole, the whole of the uh, BBC schedule should be open to competition. And that has resulted in, in a extraordinary growth of... of, of creativity in terms of the independent production sector and that in turn has uh, created an awful lot of jobs it has boosted the economy it's made the creative industries or helped make the creative industries in the UK one of the fastest growing and most successful parts of the economy so you know that the intervention um, around public service broadcasting has brought with it those benefits it's interesting that the, the lens you've looked through is is a kind of production and creative strategy, creative creative industry lens in terms of the contribution to the creative economy, but also then a sort of audience and production lens. 
It strikes me that, it, or is, it, is it fair to say that the, the kind of three things you're triangulating in, in developing policy is the, the viewers as consumers and therefore the availability of, of great content, much of which they're happy to pay for in some way, some of them at least. Um, viewers as citizens and therefore the benefits that come from an informed, uh, informed society, democracy, etc., and, and the, the cultural aspects. Uh, and then ultimately viewers as taxpayers, because some of it has to be funded. How, how do you triangulate between those three, and how, over the course of time, how much is that, is there a consistency of the relative balance, and what changes that consistency, be it political orthodoxy or changes in the industry? Well, I mean, I think the, the first one you mentioned, which is about sort of citizen, you know, consumers, servicing consumers, I mean, that has changed massively, but simply because... You know, it used to be a very limited choice. Um, initially, the BBC, ITV, and then in the eighties, Channel Four arrived, and then Channel Five arrived. But you know, and, and even with Freeview, which did make available a lot of new channels, I mean, what you didn't have, and has only recently arrived, is additional content of a quality and um, depth that simply wasn't available before you know the the new productions being financed by disney by amazon by netflix by sky um you know are as good as anything you'll find um and arguably in some cases even better than you'll find in the public service broadcasters um and so you know the consumer is now able to choose between a, a huge array of choice which simply didn't exist previously, which means that to some extent you have to think, well, why do we need PSBs at all? What is it that the PSBs need to be providing which isn't available, which is one of, one of the um, views was the, as I said, was the Britishness thing, but it, it isn't just that. There will be some types of content which are not available to the same extent, um, news and current affairs being one, but I mean sort of more serious documentaries, um, some sort of more niche arts programming, uh, religion of course is, is not really catered for um, by the streaming services. So you know, those are, those are genres which um, I think there's still a, a, a need for. Um, but the other elements of the policy objectives you set out, um, the growth of creative industries, well, you know, Netflix and Amazon are investing a vast amount in TV production in the UK because we're incredibly good at it. Um, you know, even this morning I was sent an email from Amazon Prime about their new uh, scheme for, you know, recruiting talent and developing skills, all of which is hugely valuable. Um, but, you know, the, the debate we're having around Channel 4, which I'm sure we'll touch on in greater detail, um, one of the things which, when I was a minister, I thought we might look at was whether or not you could tweak a remit of Channel 4 um, so that it was more clearly focused on developing startups or um, production outside of the southeast and London. Um, you know, it, it, this is government intervention, and the government can adjust the intervention to take account of what uh, the market is now providing and where it looks as if there is still a, a, a lack of uh, uh, incentive, and we can address that. So there is still a need for the support for the creative 
um, economy uh, in that way, and as taxpayers too. You know, the, 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 I think even though the benefit to this country from from the investment that is flowing in uh, to TV and film production from streaming services, you know, people will still see um, the PSBs as being at the heart of, of um, fueling the creative economy. I'm going to come back to the citizen, citizen and consumer piece in a minute. I just want to just to narrow it down on the on the creative economy piece. In looking at how the how the watch mechanism work, how the cogs mesh, if you like, um, to what extent is the view that the, the the intervention, the industrial strategy intervention around having public service broadcasters enables everything else, and therefore the fact that Netflix and Amazon and Apple and others are, are filling up the studios with stuff at the moment is because the pumps have been primed already by the ecology that we have, and therefore it's all interdependent. I think there is an element in that, of that, absolutely. Oh, no. And why is it that Amazon and Sky and Netflix decide that where they want to spend a vast amount of money and build new production capacity is the UK? Um, it's intensely competitive, um, TV and film production. Um, every country has been trying to lure international investors. You know, we've created all sorts of tax reliefs to try and persuade people that you know they will financially benefit from deciding to choose the UK. But at the end of it, it isn't. That's not the reason they come here. They may not have come here without that, but the reason they come here is because we're so good at it, um, and you know we have a huge depth of skills in terms of making TV programmes, but also all the associated skills required, you know, the electricians, the sound recordists, the set designers, the post-production facilities. You know, we are incredibly developed for every aspect of TV and film making. And then we also have additional advantages. Speaking English is a huge advantage. No, and when you go and talk to international film producers as to why they choose to come and make you know big blockbusters in Pinewood and not in I don't know Los Angeles or in Cape Town or in Vancouver or wherever else the, the competition is, it is those factors certainly the financial environment of the tax uh, reliefs, um, but also that. Curiously, one of the biggest factors is where the talent wants to go. And generally, people yeah. like coming and spending three, four months in the UK. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. The uh, in, intriguing trade off between uh, the kind of the market failure uh, argument, which is that there are bits that the market commercially won't provide, and therefore we should step in and, and, and make sure that content is available versus the universality argument, which is that it's not only should be available, but somehow we would encourage people to make sure that it's, it's it, the popularity is there, therefore it's consumed and, and, and so on. Um, to what extent can you have some of the policy benefits uh, that, that come in terms of all the sorts of things that Ofcom lay out in terms of the, the characteristics of content, um, stimulating appetite for knowledge, diversity and inclusion, all those, that, that, that kind of framework. Is there a risk, as the world fragments, that actually if that isn't universally consumed across big audiences, even though it's available, it's not necessarily universally consumed, that actually those policy objectives start to fray? Well, I mean, I think that goes to the heart of the debate, which I have been having for as long as I've been involved in broadcasting policy. And actually, it is not 
restricted solely to the BBC, but it is largely around the BBC, because the biggest intervention the government makes is the requirement on every household that owns a TV set to pay a licence fee, which is a not insubstantial amount of money. And the argument I have been having with the BBC, successive DGs and chairs, etc., and, and, and still rages today, is... Can you justify requiring people to pay a licence fee unless everybody who pays it feels they're getting some benefit from it? And so does the BBC need to provide something for everybody or is the argument for the BBC that actually it should be filling the gaps in the market? That you, know, you don't need another game show because there's no shortage of game shows but actually another news night or another Blue Planet um, is something the BBC is uniquely good at and which probably won't find anywhere else. And it isn't as clear-cut as saying it's got to be one or got to be the other. But you know, certainly the BBC, who still are very wedded to the principle of the licence fee, are very worried if you move away from the universality because they think that will undermine support for the licence fee. I've always been more on the side of arguing that as a free market conservative, I justify the requirement to fund the BBC on the basis that you know there is a public good in supplying content which probably wouldn't be supplied by the market. So one of the key changes which we put into the charter when I was responsible for drawing it up last time in 2015-16 was the insertion of the word distinctive and you know it, it was a tweak but distinctive was the guideline the instruction to say that what the BBC is there to do should look different to what the, com the commercial marketplace supplies. And that goes to the heart of you know, whether or not the BBC should be basically setting out to win large ratings or whether actually it should not worry about ratings. It should worry more about are they doing things which are of benefit but probably wouldn't have been made if you'd left it entirely to the commercial sector. And that, <coughs> I suspect that trade-off between... Um, reach impact ratings uh, is uh, it has been running and running. I suspect it, it's, it's, it is on running, and and as long as the BBC is funded by the license fee, um, because that is the heart of it. Um, if if one moves away from that, and the, the argument reappears in different form, because of course, if the BBC were to become a subscription service, then to some extent they have to supply content which people want to pay for. Um, I'm not persuaded that a hundred percent subscription is the answer I think I think there will always be content which the nation would be poorer if it was not available even if only a relatively small number of people choose to watch it but it is important it should be available and you need a public service broadcaster and probably a publicly owned broadcaster to provide that um I'm sure you have committed many of the uh, the Ofcom public service broadcasting reviews to heart over the years. Uh, for those for those listening who who are unaware of this, Ofcom is uh, is charged by Parliament to review the public service broadcasting um, ecology ecosystem, if you want, every five years or so to to look at its health. 
Um, I think going back over them and looking at them, it's remarkable how consistent they are, hmm. uh, arguably. Uh, not only in terms of the sorts of content, the sorts of things we talked about as, as to as to what what characterizes PSB content, but also the challenges facing the sector. There is a degree to which it, a, a slightly simplistic and maybe slightly cynical argument. If you took away the time-specific context for some of the reviews, you could actually swap the dates and it would be quite hard to tell them in between. Um, if you go back to 2004, essentially technology driving consumer choice, which is going to fragment audiences, which is going to undermine business models, which is going to decrease content spend. So size and scope of the BBC, they should be thinking actively about subscription. Channel 4 is probably not sustainable. 3 and 5 need to have their remits looked at. We need new forms of funding, potentially new people commissioning, etc. All of that very consistent, and that's 18 years ago, all of that very, very consistent all the way through. If you look at how either policymakers and or the industry has responded to those challenges, um, I guess it's almost a three bears question. Is It's sort of you know, too fast, too slow, or just about right, given, given we've ended up in not a bad place. Not a bad place, but the pressures on traditional broadcasters are going to grow. And you're absolutely right, you know, that this this is a uh, evolution of the marketplace which was foretold quite a long time ago. Actually, my first uh, contribution in this debate was, I think, in 1995, when I wrote a pamphlet called New Policies for the Media, which I'm proud to say I think holds up reasonably well in that even then you could begin to see you know, where we were going to, well, the direction in which we were travelling. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the huge um, impact of the streaming services was not really apparent then, and actually it's only been in the last few years. But you could see that that was the sort of direction we were going. And therefore, you know, there are one of the things I was trying to do when I was most recently in government was to begin to have debates which would address questions which are not immediate, but which are unavoidable over the course of the next 10 years. So, you know, whether or not the license fee can survive when you move into a world where genuinely a large proportion will say I don't watch the BBC I don't need to watch the BBC I'd rather just you know watch the latest Mandalorian or Emily in Paris or Squid Game or whatever it is that I've heard is really great and you know why do I need the BBC um, and already that that population that that body is is present and growing, you know, the, the number of people paying the licence fee is beginning to decline. So you could see that that will become much more apparent over the course of the next 10 years, and so we better start talking about it now. Um, fascinating arguments, I'm Channel 4 obviously is one, a, a, an argument again, where my uh, people said to me, why are, you, you know, why are you talking about Channel 4 when it's doing really well and it made lots of money last year? And it did do well. But this is not about Channel 4 being unsustainable next year or even in the next two or three years. It is about whether or not Channel 4 is sustainable under its present model in 10 years. And therefore, we should begin to look at that now. And you know, the commercial broadcasters, you know, ITV, for instance, still attract huge they, they attach huge importance to the issue around prominence, which at the moment is still relevant. 
is prominence going to matter in five, ten years? People, you know, the, the number of people who switch on the TV and look at an EPG in order to decide what to watch is going to steadily reduce. Um, and even now, you know, you've got the evolution of TV sets, which basically are not based around it an electronic programmed ride. So, I mean, this is fantastic for the viewer, you know. You will be given a huge amount of choice, all of which will be promoted, and you'll be reading about all these amazing shows which are um, available, and you will get home, and it doesn't matter what the time is, you probably won't even think about what channel it is on. You'll just say, oh, I read about that show, I'd really like to see it. You may not even know where it is. I mean, I've now got a TV which I can say, you know, I want to watch Mandalorian or I want to watch the news or whatever, but it, it produces it and I don't even have to think about, you know, is it on BBC One or is it on ITV or whatever. That is where we're going. Um, and so it is really to anticipate the questions that arise from that new world that I think it is sensible we address now rather than waiting until we're confronted with them. You know, it's better to think about how do we sustain Channel 4 now rather than wait until the moment when it is quite obvious that financially it is unsustainable. Um, And it would be harder actually to to deal with that at that time. I think... um I suspect the challenge is going to be joining some of the things you said earlier with some of the things you said just now, which is uh, the the new world, fantastic choice, fantastic availability, fantastic high-quality content for viewers who can pay, but arguably some of it will be free as well. But the world we've built and still exists in a slightly different shape, but still exists, um, and which we want to sustain has at its heart the sorts of content that we've uh, we've been used to and which the industry produces it's how to it's how to sustain that into a world in which viewers have that choice and, and those and those models have to change or need to need to adjust pretty significantly yeah um they do but you know, if, if we just leap in because although in in some ways one of the things that has been consistent over the course of the the, the period alongside the, uh, the the psb objectives and and, and content objectives um, is the increasing pressure on content investment and the, the risk that the, the, the system dehydrates. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the cost of content production is, is rising faster than the general level of, of costs in the economy. I mean, partially because there is so much demand out there and a limited amount of, of capacity to, to meet it. Um, but it then raises questions that... You know, if, if you believe there is still a role and, and it's still important to have public service broadcasting available, then there are two means by which the PSBs are funded at present. One is the BBC's licence fee, and then that begs the question of, of persuading people that they should still pay, probably, um, if not directly through a charge in the form of a licence fee then through maybe general taxation but there should be public funding uh, of some at least some content of the BBC how you can make that case when you know a large number of people will say well I don't watch it and there's plenty out there which I do enjoy and I don't need it and then the other 
method of funding traditionally of Channel 3 and 4 and 5 has been advertising. But again, advertising requires audiences. You know, you will only you will only achieve a large revenue from selling ads if you can demonstrate to the advertiser there are a large number of people watching it. And that too is going to be under pressure when there is all this additional choice available elsewhere. So trying to find a method of sustaining the traditional um, funding of public service broadcasters is quite a challenge. And, you know, I mean, the, Channel 4, I think, is, is most acutely uh, affected because its only source of revenue is advertising. ITV has attempted to diversify to some extent, so it has other sources of revenue, but it's still essentially an advertising-funded channel. And that that is also going to be challenging because it will need for them to be able to compete and make content which people want to watch in competition with content elsewhere, which has probably benefited from I don't know, two, three, four times the budget that ITV or the BBC can afford. I've got to look backwards again. If you think through uh, sort of the span of the last 15, year, 15 years or so, what at, at any opportunities that have been missed along the way? And if so, what, 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 what can we learn from those in terms of what we shouldn't do in the future or what we should, what we should try and avoid? In I think, well, one of the things which, you know, I would be critical of the BBC uh, over, and it isn't just the BBC, but um, the BBC's response to the change in the market and what the market is providing has not been really ever to sort of have a fundamental rethink. What do we do? What is it important that we continue to do? And what perhaps do we no longer need to do? So you know, the BBC has launched new channel channels. The BBC has continued to think oh, well, we've got to be present in every area of um, content provision, um, and we've got to go on increasing our budget, arguing for a bigger licence fee, arguing for a larger BBC. And that may be, in some areas, the right decision, but I have had the impression that the BBC has always sort of wanted to go on providing in every area of the market. And there has never been... You know, the BBC's response is to launch ever more channels, so it's just got bigger and bigger. And now, you know, there are certain areas where you think, well, do we really need all those channels? You know, could you not provide less but higher quality um, and maybe walk away from some areas of content because it's so widely available elsewhere? And you know, that was one of the... when when the most recent licence fee settlement was announced. Uh, Michael Crade, who is you know, a robust uh, commentator, I mean, he was critical of the BBC. That you know, he said he, 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 they have got to begin to have this debate about scope. And I tried to have the debate about scope when I was looking at Charter. But, of course, the government's ability to tell the BBC what it should be doing and what it shouldn't be doing is actually very limited. The government decides how much money to give to the BBC in terms of a licence fee settlement. But you cannot, apart from some general instruction through the agreement, 
you can't say, well, you shouldn't be spending it on that, you should be spending it on this. And actually, the BBC's instant response whenever a licence fee settlement is announced is to say, oh, well, we're no longer, we're going to have to close down BBC Local Radio or something. Well, actually, I think BBC Local Radio is hugely important. It isn't uh, provided for in the same way by the market, and it would be a real loss. And I'd much rather they look to other areas which are well provided, but the government can't say you've got to do this and you can't you can't cut that um, because that's the arm's length principle it's the independence of the BBC and, and in general I'm, I'm not arguing the government should be able to do that but it's quite frustrating if you are sitting in the DCMS as a minister and saying we are going to give you this budget in the coming year or the coming five years and then the BBC come back and say well we're going to select the most popular part of our output and say we're no longer going to provide it um, because they know that will generate the biggest you know, uproar and criticism from the public. So the, the government's ability to um, really is determine what the BBC and to some extent other broadcasters do is very, very limited. How how would you kind of I guess rate or, or evaluate the degree to which the PSBs have been able to work closer together? There's been all sorts of talk of, of, of partnerships over the years. Um, things have been tried. I have the scars on my back from Project Kangaroo. But I yeah. mean the, those those sorts of things. And and is there scope for more of that in the future? Well, and what are the impediments to doing? Well, that? firstly, Project Kangaroo is is regarded by many as the greatest sort of missed opportunity of recent years. And you know, there are certainly some who believe that the sort of dominance of the international streaming platforms uh, might not have been achieved if, if you know, the UK PSBs had got together and successfully launched a, a, a Project Kangaroo uh, at the time when it was under uh, consideration. And, and you know, I don't want to keep quoting Michael Gray, but I've heard him say, you know, the CMA's intervention was the biggest disaster for UK broadcasting in recent times. And I think you can, you know, I think you, you can make that argument. Um, it, 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 there is a lot of talk about closer collaboration between the PSBs. If you talk to particularly the commercial broadcasters, uh, they have found it immensely difficult. Uh, the BBC has been very reluctant to open up. You know, they have closely guarded the iPlayer. You know, there's no suggestion of allowing really anybody else to get involved with the iPlayer. Um, and and even in areas where they have tried to work together, you know, I've I've heard, and I'm sure you've heard, many many complaints that actually when it comes down to it, the BBC are very very difficult to work with. And so yes, I think without doubt there could have been much greater collaboration which would have been to the benefit of UK broadcasting as a whole. Is it also fair to say that you've got um, sort of in a way the clash of two geographies happening at the same time because you have global platforms, global streamers who can think about uh, the planet as a whole. By definition the public service broadcasters are defined almost by old tech as to what the signal could reach and therefore a national footprint and therefore subject to competition law and all sorts of things around how they can collaborate and compete or not, um, and market impact tests and so on and so on. To what extent does, can that or should that be considered going forward, and, 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 and what are the interventions that would need to help? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right that this is another um, 
tension in, in the do you look at the global market in which the BBC is a relatively small player or do you look at the UK domestic market in which the UK which the BBC is still a very big player and you know the, the howls you will hear from the commercial sector about the anti-competitive behavior of the BBC is still very great I mean it's particularly great in radio um, but equally you know you'll hear it uh, from ITV. I'm mean, to give you just one example of um, most recently. You know, ITV got very upset over the fact that they were outbid by the BBC for Gossip Girl. Um, and actually, I have some sympathy. You know, why is it that the license fee payer is having to pay a bigger, bigger sum to? I can't remember which company makes Gossip Girl, but whoever it is in America, in order to be able to show a show which would have been available to UK viewers on the commercial channel if they hadn't bid for it. So, you know, there is still that internal competition, which, you know, in, in terms of the global audience, uh, the global strength of, of UK uh, TV um, is, is quite damaging. And I... I I don't know if there's an easy answer to this, you know, there will still, there is always going to be competition in for UK audiences, um, and you, it's reflected perhaps in the salaries that are paid to, you know, highly uh, rated talent. Uh, it's you see it in terms of the competition for sports rights. So within the UK, there is quite stiff competition already between the broadcasters. But then you know the BBC will present you with the chart which shows you know the revenues available to Netflix and to Amazon and to Sky and you know they are a small fish in that if if you, if you look at that particular pool. Any sense as well as to the degree to which, I mean, yes, comp competing on, on, on rights and talent, but the degree to which they could collaborate in other areas that hasn't, that hasn't worked through, um, or, where there, or there, where there might be greater opportunities going forward? I think there is, I, I think there is undoubtedly um, greater opportunity. And, and to some extent, you know, we are now hearing about it. I'll be interested to see whether... You know, it actually can be delivered in practice. But if you go and talk to the BBC or you talk to ITV and Channel 4, all of them will say there needs to be much greater collaboration because we're in this world where we're suddenly having to compete with these massive international uh, companies. And part of the answer is, at its ultimate, and this again will raise big competition questions, at its ultimate, should there be further consolidation in the UK market? So, for instance, even I, when I was a minister, still had a open mind as to whether or not Channel 4 should be sold. But if the government reached a decision that Channel 4 does need uh, an owner with deeper pockets who can sustain it into the future, uh, there are some who will say, well, actually, an ITV Channel 4 merger would create a much stronger UK PSB than having the two separate. But then the CMA will say, hold on a minute, you know, you're going to massively reduce the competition in the advertising market, etc. And there are competition 
debates which are still very live, and it's about what you regard the market as. Do you look at a market as being the UK broadcasters, or do you look at it as actually the UK being a, a small uh, player in what is now a world of huge global content providers? <clears throat> but it also strikes me that it, 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 it depends what you're solving for. Um, and in a, in a policy point of view, you get back to that triangle again in terms of how the funding works, how the citizenship bit works, and how the, how the consumer choice works. And at some stage, the industry can come up with a point of view on that, and you can let it happen organically. But at some stage, from, from behind the desk at DCMS, there's presumably got to be a view that says, actually, we think this is the right answer. There is. I mean, one of the debates which you know, we were beginning to touch on was whether or not you could turn around and actually say to the competition authority, you know, okay, we hear what you say about the um, reduction in competition in, within the UK market, but actually we have a, 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 a bigger concern and a bigger picture, and therefore we're going to overturn that. Um, we, we hadn't even begun to think about that, but it, it was at least a consideration that we could see might arise if we went down that road. Um, and, you know, government, you know, I, I, as I said earlier, the DCMS and ministers can't tell the broadcasters what programmes to make uh, and what not to make. But in terms of the um, structure of UK broadcasting, um, then, yeah, I mean, the, these are very live debates. And that was certainly my intention when we set up the PSB panel was to have exactly this discussion um, looking forward over the next 10 years. Just pausing for a second, conscious of time. Are you okay for another no, no, five, five or 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, perfect. Um, other countries, international, have you ever looked wistfully over your shoulder and gone, gone they've got a better model? I mean, there's a bit of a truism, <clears throat> I suspect, that we think we have the best television in the world. I suspect other countries do as well, in the sense that they probably think that they have the best television in the world. Any countries that you've looked to and said, actually, there's a model there or an industry there that we could learn from? Well, I'm sure there are elements we can learn from. And one of the things I did when I was chairing the select committee was actually we did do quite a lot of sort of looking around the world, including going to visiting one or two countries to look at the way they did. I remember we went to look at Canadian broadcasting. We went to look at Germany. Germany is quite similar um, in that they have a, a, a sort of big public service broadcaster and then a smaller one, which is sort of not wholly dissimilar to Channel 4. Um, and they have a, they've moved toward a household tax to um, fund it. Um, but in terms of the quality of broadcasting, actually, I do think the BBC is the finest broadcaster in the world. And I think that ITV and Channel 4 have huge strengths alongside them. So there is no country where I would go and say, gosh, their television is far better than anything we get. Yeah, I mean, some of the content which is now available, um, particularly from these giants who are able to spend huge amounts of money, I mean, is incredibly impressive and arguably would be beyond the ability of, of the UK, a, a UK broadcaster to fund. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, you know, having spent some time looking around to find somewhere which does it better, actually, I don't think I've, I've found anywhere. I mean, I think, I think, 
UK broadcasting is still of huge quality, as is reflected in the fact that you know, there are so many countries around the world we spend a great deal of money buying productions yeah. made here. Um, one other thread that, is, uh, that has been um, getting bigger over the course of the last few years, uh, which I think is now sort of officially recognised in the, in the Ofcom terminology, the shift from public service broadcasting to public service media. So the, 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 the kind of liberation from the constraints of format and schedules and yeah. pipes and all the rest of it. Um, what, have, what have you seen in, the, in, in how that debate has evolved? Um, and a, a couple of different angles, perhaps. The first is format. Um, it doesn't have to be. There's no, there's no reason why those policy objectives have to be delivered by a TV program of a certain length. Um, but second, also then, in thinking through uh, the, the, the PSB debate has been linked to providers, to institutions, essentially, and it's always been kind of framed in that. How does that change going forward in the sense there are lots of people, I suspect, who are producing public service media, some of, some of them from the public purse, does that become a flavour of the debate, or, um, or it's a part of the debate? And you know, you 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 have a broadcaster like Sky, who have for some time now argued that it's unfair that you know ITV, BBC, Channel Four and Five are designated public service broadcasters, and they're not. When they would argue that they produce just as much public service content um, as some of the PSPs. Um, and then you can go beyond that, because Sky is still a, a, a TV broadcaster, but you get into online distribution and different types of media. And yeah, you can fulfil the public purposes uh, of, of having a trusted news provider. It doesn't have to be at 10 o'clock on a you know, weekday on the BBC. Um, so, I mean, I think Ofcom are right to say that you know, we need not to be remain blinkered in, in only looking at things that look like traditional TV channels. Um, I still think traditional TV channels will remain for quite some time to come. And I know one of the one of the arguments with, which we've been having about you know how it may be that the license fee will evolve is, is I know, there are I've no doubt that everybody will get TV over the internet at some future point. I, I now have at home a IPTV television, so I, it doesn't have an aerial plugged in. All my TV is streamed, but that's still at the very yeah, yeah. infancy. And yeah. it will be, but you know, one of the first things you need to do before you can achieve that is firstly have universal coverage of broadband. And if you listen to the government, they will say, well, we're at 95% coverage of Superfast. Which is true, but actually, ninety percent, five percent coverage doesn't mean that ninety-five percent of the population are getting it, and there's still quite a big chunk who don't feel they need it, and it's not cheap. You know, if you say well, we can move to a subscription for the BBC, for instance, before we can even do that, every household has to be paying what thirty quid a month or forty quid a month for the broadband service, and not everybody is. Um, there will come a time when they are, but it's going to take quite a long time but you know we will eventually move to a world where you know you can get a massive array of different types of content all streamed to different types of devices some of them will be 
pretty similar to the box in the corner of a room that you've got now, but there will be mobiles, there'll be laptops, there'll be iPads, you know, all the different, and probably one or two we haven't even thought about. You know, there will be many, many different ways of consuming media. And to some extent, public service broadcasting needs to evolve so that it is available in the form that people want to view it. There's no point in saying, well, it's got to be the 10 o'clock news on the TV if actually people have given up watching the 10 o'clock news on TV. And that brings with it a whole new raft of questions because if the BBC say, well, we've got to be where people want to see us, for instance, we've got to have online news provision, then you run slap into the printed press saying, well, people no longer read newspapers, so we've got to make our content available online through you know, the Telegraph website, the Times website, and then how can we persuade people to pay if they can get the same content free from the BBC? So there's a whole new element of competition um, and market impact, um, which you know, Ofcom will be needing to monitor. And again, all of these things, all of these things overlap um, and, and need to be kind of worked through strikes me that, again, it depends what you're trying to solve for, which is that um, if you go back to some of the stuff we were saying earlier around uh, the importance of universality, the importance of impact, the importance of reach, it's a brave political decision, but it, keeping the funding somehow going through whatever model into the PSB system in order to maintain the volume and the quality in order for the, for the brands to work, in order for it to be consumed, is, is a brave political decision when you've got a proliferation of choice and the commercial world is stepping up and doing all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but somehow that all needs to be sorted through because otherwise, again, the benefits that, that have been delivered start to get uh, diluted if that system comes apart. I, I would absolutely agree with that. I, it, it's, it's, it's a political debate that has been going on for as long as I've been involved, but it is becoming more acute. Is that a material issue for voters? Is it hitting the mailbag? Um, it, it, it doesn't feature large in the mailbag, but if you look at the opinion polls about you know willingness to go on paying the license fee, there you can see the signs of that. And actually, in the actual evidence of the number who do pay the license fee, the the figures are beginning to show up there. Um, and I think it will become greater over time. I mean, the the way in which people consume media is changing so rapidly and particularly younger people you know, I mean I'm still of a generation that does tend to look and see what's on tonight but you know my children are in their 20s don't you know? um, there's an enormous amount going on across government um, dealing with uh, the, the COVID and post-Brexit and and uh, hopefully not for hopefully a short-term duration of, of what's currently happening um, internationally uh, to what extent is the is there the appetite um, to, to kind of grasp these issues. If you, if you think about the timing of this charter renewal coming up, um, you know, not far off by the time you've got an election in between, therefore manifestos get written at some point, it's, you almost kind of back it off and say, a lot of the thinking on this is probably needs to be done in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, and is that something that, that there's both the appetite and the capacity to do, given everything else that's going on? I mean, both are challenges. I mean, in terms of the appetite, you know, 
is it top of the list of people's priorities? I mean, no. I mean, people think it's more important to sort out the NHS or social care or I don't know, education or Brexit or whatever it happens to be. You know, how we adapt uh, media policy and media legislation um, is not something which features in the list of the top ten issues that people are worried about. Um, that doesn't mean it's unimportant. And then reflecting that, there is the capacity issue as well. I mean, DCMS has grown enormously. Um, even since I was Secretary of State, it's, it's much bigger, and it covers a huge range of issues, even within DCMS. You know, the, for instance, um, this session is dominated by the online safety bill from DCMS, which is, is clearly an attempt to um, update legislation to take account of, of how people now consume content um, but in the next session there is going to be a, a, a raft of, of legislative proposals from government departments right across Whitehall even within DCMS when I was there and I don't think this has changed there were two big bids for bills in the next session of parliament one was the data bill which is all about um, taking advantage of the Brexit opportunity of framing our own data laws rather than just you know, accepting the ones laid down in Brussels. And then there was the media bill. And the media bill, the biggest element of it was Channel 4 if the government decided to go ahead with um, selling Channel 4. But alongside that, there was the prominence legislation which has been talked about for three, four years, but is still awaited. Um, the government has decided it needs to extend uh, the sort of basic regulatory requirements to streaming services, um, so it's VOD regulation. There's some stuff around radio. So you know, the media bill is quite a chunky piece of legislation, but firstly it's got to win the battle in DCMS that this is what DCMS thinks is the most important. And then you've got to persuade the rest of government that it's worth giving time to in a legislative programme. And that's quite tough. Um, if, the, if you had a magic wand... Yeah. <laughs> If you had a magic wand, I mean, one of the things that we, we try and do is uh, sort of really helping the industry think these, these things through. If you had a magic wand for, for something that the industry, either as individual players or collectively, could do, um, uh, John Burt famously said in his, uh, uh, I think in his memoirs, um, don't let things happen to you. Um, what could the industry do to get, to get ahead? If there was one thing we should, we should be stepping up and doing. I mean, I do think um, a gr greater collaboration and a a willingness to uh, not defend you know, every square inch of territory currently occupied by each of the individual broadcasters, and therefore you know, a, a, a more open mind about opportunities, um, that would be a good start. Um, and perhaps internationally as well. Uh, I mean, the, the international co-pro is, is, is actually been quite successful, but you know, I, again, I think it's a question of, of bringing together the resources um, which the international providers can bring with the 
abilities and talents in this country, which they're doing in terms of, you know, Netflix is, is employing huge numbers of people in this country. But actually, I think there is scope for um, greater uh, collaboration between the broadcasters. Um, and perhaps a slightly longer term thing, you know, way of thinking. I mean, I think you know, there is a great tendency to think, oh, well, we did really well last year, so why are you, you know, where's the problem? Why are we even raising these questions when, you know, we've had our best year? Um, you know, it's not only Channel 4 who say that, but that is, you know, something you hear from Channel 4. Um, and to persuade people that actually, you know, if you're government, actually it's important you don't just think about how it's going to look in this year. But you know, all of these trends, as you said in talking about the Ofcom PSB reviews, you could see the direction of travel, and we're still at the early part of the journey. And uh, I think both the risk and the opportunity, there's the old cliche that people um, overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. Yes. And there's a degree to which in the PSB reviews, uh, at every point along the way, yeah. you know, everything's going to change in the next three to five years, and then actually, this review would seem to be surprisingly healthy, but the next three to five years are going to be really tough. It strikes me that at some point we run out of road, yeah, absolutely, um, and that right. thinking needs to needs to come together. I mean, one of the ideas that's been bouncing around is, um, I mean, it's often specifically been in the context of the BBC, where there've been significant shift moments, um, where there's been essentially some kind of public inquiry or some kind of um, independent, uh, open and transparent uh, process. Uh, which can bring the industry together, evidence-led, sort of the role that Ofcom plays. But is the, is would that be would that be something that would would make sense at this stage? Essentially, it's a, a, for want of a better word, it's kind of a, a different version of the Peacock Committee. Well, there is going to be. You know, we have a charter which is running till twenty twenty seven, but then. You know, I mean, Nadine's statement, this is the last licence fee settlement, I think is is premature. I think it'll be very difficult to come up with an alternative funding system by then. But you know, the debate around the future funding options, which the government is right to say we need to start, uh, whether or not you, know, you, you could have that with a, a peacock-type review... Um, it would certainly do no harm, but also you can't look at it in isolation. That was the you know that was the purpose of the public service broadcasting panel which we set up. Um, it was to sort of think much more long term because there isn't the wasn't an immediate issue, maybe Channel Four, um, but there wasn't otherwise an immediate issue which they were being required to provide an answer to. It was much more about you know. How is broadcasting going to look in ten years' time? And if we still think it's important to have an element which is public service, how do we provide it and how do we fund it? Um, and so you could broaden that out into a, a wider debate than just the seven members of the panel who sat around a table. And that I think might well be worth having. Because as I understand it, that process was a—I mean—it's essentially an advisory panel for. It was an advisory panel for, for, for behind ministers. closed doors. I think. I think it was. There was no. There was no report issued publicly. <clears throat> I mean, the the. It, I mean, I I participated and and found the discussions very stimulating, 
uh, an enjoyable, but you know there was never going to be a document come out of it at the end. Um, which is one I of think the, I think others have tried to find out, or uh, almost kind of submitted FOI requests to, to, to understand what those conversations were about, which you can understand. Yeah. Um, particularly, well, I think we did, and I think I think maybe as a result of the FOI request. I mean, I think minutes were produced, but it wasn't. It, it was it was an internal debate um, where I was just felt useful to have you know, half a dozen slightly more people who, who each brought you, know, you had people like Jane Turton and Sophie Turner Lang who, who, who came from the very successful indie sector you had Andrew Griffith and Michael Grade you know big experienced broadcasters uh, Robbie Gibb was with us for a bit and then went off to joined the BBC board, uh, Gabby Burton from BT. So, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it was to... They weren't wearing a specific hat speaking on behalf of where they come, but they were all people who had interesting views. Um, and, I mean, I, I thought it was a useful exercise, but it was an internal exercise, and it was never intended to produce a report. Um, the Ofcom PSB was a much more public exercise, but the Ofcom PSB report was much more a sort of analysis of the present state of public service broadcasting and trends um, going into the future. It was not a policy uh, discussion. You know, the Ofcom are very clear, you know, we will tell you what we think is going to happen, but you've got to decide whether that's a good thing or whether or not you want to change policy to influence it. and I mean, I, I think I still think it's a, a fascinating um, debate, which is is immediate. You know, the world is changing so rapidly. Um, we do need to be having it now, but whether or not government should have a, a sort of more structured process for opening it up, certainly it's not in prospect at the moment. But I think you could argue it should be. I mean, you, you use the word fascinating. I think another thread that comes through is, um, given what's happening literally today, you could you could debate this, but but I think all all, all these things overlap. Uh, one of the things you said in the in your speech to the RTS last uh, the the last Cambridge convention, um, our economy relies on our creative industries, and our national identity our national identity uh, relies on it as well. Get, keeping that engine going and calibrated and fit for purpose in the future, um, in some ways there's nothing more fundamentally important. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh, um, I can't resist. I'm going to end with a quote from Mark Thompson just to, <laughs> just, just to see how you react. Um, this was him writing, I think, in 2016, just after the, the Putnam Review. Um, PSB will become more, not less, important to British audiences over the next decade. Political support for PSB is weaker today than at any time in its history, and this growing mismatch between need and supply is the central problem in current broadcasting policy. No, I don't think I do agree with that. I think the first part, the PSB is, if anything, becoming more important, is arguable on some counts. Um, It is not true in that the quality of content available outside the PSBs is so much greater than it has ever been before. Um, and that does beg the question about why you need to um, have PSBs providing it. I think there are answers to that which we've discussed. But on the other hand, where I think the need for PSB has become much stronger 
is encountering the sort of uh, what is termed the fake news. You know, there is so much out there which is unreliable, biased, some in some cases you know, deliberately misleading that the need for absolutely trusted, reliable, objective, factual content is greater. And that's one of the core purposes of PSB. I would say government recognition of that has also grown. I mean, COVID proved it to some extent, but it was apparent even before COVID. I mean, you know, fake news was around before, uh, you know, the anti-vaxxers and and all the others. I don't. I, you know, I. 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 It depends what you mean. The support for PSB is weaker, and and Mark, you know, he might, he might be speaking bearing the scars of having been under fire as DG for as long as he was at the BBC, and and you know, being DG is a bloody awful job because you know you are the the target for you know the whole of the tabloid press for Parliament for, and things go wrong in the BBC, but. Know, it does does the government still believe that the BBC does, is deserving of support? Um, and actually, why didn't BBC Public Service Broadcasting is still, still necessary? I would say very strongly yes. I can't say that every single one of my colleagues in this building would take the same view. But um, Therein lies what uh, Adam Singer, who I think you know well... Um, has described as our national debate as a as a kind of media class. I can't resist as well. I see you've got um, Charlotte Higgins's book on your uh, on your shelf. It's specifically in the context of the BBC, but maybe in the context of PSB as well. Um, it's it's entirely a good idea. I'm misquoting her slightly, but <laughs> entirely a good idea if only it would conform to your own own view of what it should be. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, therein, and therein lies the debate. Which is, and, which is, is the debate. And, and and the trouble is, I. I, I I mean, particularly, you know, you have a a House of Commons of of members of Parliament, all of whom, you know, will have specific criticisms of the BBC and will feel that the BBC does not properly reflect either their views or the views of the people they represent. And, and, you know, they're they're always going to be on a losing wicket to that extent. Um, And they'll always have criticism. Um, and I, you know, I've spent many hours debating whether or not the BBC is biased, and I've always found it slightly frustrating that outside of the political world, people regarded me as being hostile to the BBC. Something I furiously um, sought to uh, um, counter because I, I regard I myself as a strong supporter of the BBC, and actually in this building. I'm regarded as being very soft on the BBC because I don't believe in privatisation. I argue that they're not sort of inherently left-wing and biased, and actually I support very strongly the independence of the BBC uh, and the importance of government not you know, seeking to turn them into a, 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 a state-run uh, broadcaster. Fantastic. You've been enormously generous with your time. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> In our next episode, you can hear my conversation with David Abraham, who was CEO of Channel 4 from 2010 to 2017. We talked about his views of Channel 4's remit as a publicly owned and commercially run broadcaster, 
and its role as a catalyst and innovator in the PSB sector. We also met shortly after the government's white paper confirmed its intention to privatise Channel 4. And here are a few of the strident things that David had to say about their plans. There's a big black hole in the centre of the assessment of, what, of what's going on here. They basically made a vague set of assumptions about sustainability and audience trends, many of which you could debate. You know, it's, it's not like we go around saying every institution in the country needs to be able to prove that it will exist in 10 years' time, otherwise it'll have its licence removed. It's absurd. That's not how business operates. Business has to prove itself every year um, or every quarter. So I do think any institution, including Channel 4, is vulnerable if it fails to innovate. If it keeps innovating at or ahead of the market, then it has a right to exist and a right to succeed. It will need to keep innovating. It'll keep needing to lean into digital. But it's been doing that, and it continues to do that. And the routes of digital revenue are now very, very material, and the amount of digital revenue growth is very, very material. So it feels like the people who are actually qualified to manage and judge this are being ignored, and the people who are coming from outside the industry are telling the industry that they have a concern about its sustainability because, quote-unquote, they're worried about exposure to the taxpayer. It's, it's, it's just dishonest. You've been listening to Lens by British Screen Forum. My name is Pete Johnson, and I'm the CEO of British Screen Forum, where the best informed and most influential people in the UK screen sectors convene to interrogate issues of importance and influence policy and the thinking around policy. This podcast series is just one way in which we help our members frame the debate over the future of the UK screen sectors. If you'd like to find out more about our work or sign up for a future public-facing event, please visit our website at britishgreenforum.co.uk where you will also find an interactive timeline covering the key events, people and reports discussed in this series. Episodes in this series are released fortnightly and can be found on all major podcast platforms.